Hey, everyone. I want to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Copper. Copper is an institutional custodian in crypto and provider of prime services. They're also one of my favorite companies in the space. So thank you very much to Copper for making this episode possible. You're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined, as always, by my happy co-host, Ms. Mark Houston. I've given you that adjective today because I said, hey, Mark, what's going on this morning? You said, or what's up? You said everything. 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 And just, you know, I'll, I'll lead off with, with, I'm wearing, not orange, but green today. Massive green candles everywhere. I have the the Bitcoin moon sock game. And mm. wait, wait, where'd my moon go? There it is. There it is. There it is. There's the moon. Um, and it's not really about the rocket. It's about the moon. And we'll talk about that. A um, couple things that I want to talk about that I said I was going to surprise you. I don't think most people are going to think that my homework assignment for all the listeners is you have to watch the Tucker Carlson interview of Putin. I haven't watched the whole thing yet. He's going to break the internet, first of all. I mean, I couldn't even get it to download last night. It was so hot. Over 100 million views in less than, you know, 18 hours. But I watched the section from like 115 on because someone pointed it out to me. Unbelievable. I mean, this guy talking about the weaponization of the dollar and how it's backfiring and how people need to do something to protect themselves and how China is taking advantage of it. Everyone needs to watch it. And the other thing I will say is, you know, we we listen to what we're told, right? We, we watch Western press and we watch, you know, the the pronouncements from the White House and you know, they'll have you believe this this guy is is this megalomaniac, you know, loose cannon. Watch him speak. And I'm not I'm not gonna tell you what to think, but I just, I just want people to watch him speak live. And then you tell me in the comments what, what y'all think. Well but, it was a two hour two hour video. I haven't I haven't had the chance to watch it yet, but um yeah, I d I don't really know how to I obviously Putin is a very smart guy. I've never really believed that he's uh, he's off his rocker or some kind of megalomaniac. I'm I'm not convinced he's the best guy of all time or particularly good actor. But name a politician in history who's a quote unquote good guy. Right. They are self-interested. They're probably narcissistic in, in many ways. They're 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 megalomaniac in the sense that they want power and wealth. I mean. I mean, Putin enriched himself the same way all of our politicians enriched themselves. But what I'm speaking of is the intellectual horsepower. And then think of the other leaders that we know and and just compare. That's all. Mm. Well, I, I, I was, you know, you're reminding me of there. There was a really great thread. I'm trying to find it. Um, uh, Ari Paul uh, put something out about, yeah, a fair a fairly large percentage of people at the top of their fields being sociopaths. And uh, sure. he, I'm sure you've probably had to deal with this. Um, I, I, like, you know, so every once in a while you'll run into someone and you'll, you know, I hate it realize, when people call me a sociopath, Mike. I mean, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you're, you're the furthest thing, Mark, but uh, he, said, there, he, says, are, he says with all immodesty, right? Yeah. Um, top of my there, field. Ha ha ha. I didn't pick up. That's funny. But I, well, I guess from that standpoint, but you're maybe the rare exception that proves the rule. But there there are a lot of 
people that are you know sociopaths that end up uh, ascending to the top of social hierarchies, corporations, governments, etc. And he has he has some pretty good advice on how to deal with those people. Absolutely, and, the and TLDRs treat treat them like a as you would a quarter animal if you can't. Yeah. But my my point in reason I want everyone to watch this video is one of the things that separates great thinkers, great investors, I'll just say great people, is they constantly seek out different opinions and different views and different perspectives and listen to them. Actually listen. Don't listen trying to trying to, you know, change the other person's mind or listen to them trying to, you know, prove your point. Actually listen. And guys, I do this actually all the time with with Bitcoin is I watch the fudsters and I watch the haters and I actually listen. I'm like, okay, because what they're saying makes sense. And what's interesting, at least for me in my, you know, 11 year Bitcoin journey, most of them just don't make sense. Like if you if you actually listen to what they're saying, you know, no, that that's that's either wrong or, or or doesn't make sense. Now there there are certainly criticisms that have been right, and we've talked about some of the things that that are real and an unfinished business, but it, it's it's just cool. And, and and the guy who I think is the best at fud busting, I love the guy, is Jameson Lop. I mean, he's so good at he'll just put out the facts like you know when people who was it that said oh it was um jamie diamond well satoshi's just going to show up and and create a whole bunch more and jameson just casually posts here's the code that says that can't happen i agree with you mark and one of my frustrations around the dialogue around bitcoin forever has been that the intelligent criticisms of Bitcoin are actually not the ones that get aired. So what I do not consider to be a le- very credible or intelligent criticism is Bitcoin is used for illegal money laundering. I, I just I don't know how much evidence we have to put out there to prove that that's not the case. Don't love that criticism. That is trying to elicit negative. It's an association game, right? If Ms. Warren associates money laundering, terrorism, child trafficking with this threat to her and her backers. That's the problem. It's not really a threat to her. It's a threat to her funders. Then that for the average person who doesn't do any work and just hears that, oh, money laundering, drug trafficking. Now, if you go a little deeper, like, well, who, who and what? organizations are actually involved in money laundering and drug traffic. Hey, everyone. Wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Copper. Copper is an institutional custodian and provider of prime services within digital assets. Today, what I want to talk to you specifically about is Clearloop. Clearloop is a solution from Copper, which to me solves one of the biggest problems for market makers, high frequency traders, hedge funds within digital assets. You know the exquisite pain of what I call the pre-funding problem. So if you want to take advantage of arbitrages that pop up across different exchanges, or you just have a trading strategy which requires you to be active on multiple different centralized exchanges, you have to pre-fund your account at each one of those exchanges. Now, this is not ideal for a whole bunch of reasons. One, 
you have to take counterparty risk from those exchanges, which as we saw this last year can have major consequences. Two, it's capital inefficient. You have a whole bunch of assets spread out there. Most of them are not doing anything most of the time. And three, it's just not great from a workflow standpoint, and it creates administrative overhead. So enter Clearloop. Clearloop is the secure MPC custody solution provided by Copper. The way that it works is you deposit your assets into this MPC solution, which is owned and operated by you. Clearloop syncs up with a whole bunch of your favorite exchanges, and then you can trade securely from Clearloop itself while not taking any counterparty exchange risk with any of these exchanges. And it's a super easy and nice UX. Now, Clearloop is trusted by the likes of Flow Traders, Brevin Howard, Nickel, some of the best in the business. But the coup de grace is in the extreme edge case that one of these exchanges were to go bankrupt, they have a very clever trust structure, which segregates your assets and keeps you completely protected. So click the link at the bottom of this episode, especially if you're a hedge fund and market maker and you want to learn more or better yet, Dimitri, the CEO is actually going to be in person on a panel hosted by yours truly at Digital Asset Summit. So Das London, that's March 18th to the 20th in London. So you should definitely click the link at the bottom of this episode, give your boy some credit, but also even better, come to Das London and hear from Dimitri himself. All right. Cheers, everyone. Now, just because I want to get to actual stories of the week here, but one, I, if, if you want to go back, the there are two insights from this interview from a long time ago that like really deeply resonated with me and informed my worldview about Bitcoin and inflation. Uh, and it was an it was an interview that our old uh, Tyler Neville, for those of you who remember him, um, who used to be at Blockworks, uh, he did an interview with a guy named Russell Clark back in June of 2021. Uh, and if you want, Russell's wanted, one of my favorite people. I mean, the love title. Russell. He's the best. Uh, the title of the interview is "Wages Are the Key to Rising Yields." So wait, and Russell he, lives in in London. Aren't we going to London sometime? We are going to London. And you know, yeah. now that you say that, we should hit him up because the, I, look, he, I'll get it. I'm going to give you these two things from, you know, an interview from almost four years ago now that hugely influenced my worldview. And uh, one of them was that inflation uh, is, is a choice. And, and he said it, he lays it out very simply. Um, and it really, I'm not going to butcher his argument, but he lays it out in a sense that you know, if policymakers want inflation versus deflation, now they might not, they might have to compromise on how they get it. But uh, in, in a sense, asset prices and inflation and wages are a choice. And those are all interlinked things. Now, the and the other thing uh, that he laid out was, uh, you know, he and Tyler talked about Bitcoin. And, you know, he said it's a very supply driven argument. Um, and all of these times that he's sort of seen exclusively supply driven arguments in the past, it never quite plays out the way those people think. And yep. That has influenced my anyway, we've talked about this about commodities and um, substitutes. But I, I want to get on to I want to get on to GBTC here and analyze because I think people are so obviously, you know, we're we're recording this on Friday morning. Uh, the price of Bitcoin now is just above forty seven thousand. So, you know, to relive the last couple of weeks, Mark, we had our run up uh, into the launch of the newborn nine ETFs, GBTC converted. Uh, it ended up being a at the time, it looked like a, a buy the rumor, sell the news type event. You know, we sold off from about forty nine thousand. I know, I know, I know. Let me let me let me editorialize here, and then you can I, know, I know, I know, I know. But and and I know that's what people actually said. Like legitimately thinking, people tried to say that as if they believed it. But anyway, I know you're not believing it. But I'm not. I'm not believing. It. Yeah. So, I mean. 
it's one of those cases where like everyone can kind of say they were right, right? Because at the day the day that the ETFs did debut, it did run up, it did sell off from about forty nine thousand, you know, sub forty thousand again. So a good enough sell off, right? That people can take their can take their victory laps, and people started to worry about GBTC outflows. Now we've been talking about for a couple of weeks the GBTC outflows when they started, it was you know anywhere from four to six hundred million dollars on a daily basis, right? Which kind of spooks people, but now those inflow those outflows have started to slow down, you know, hundred million dollars or sub hundred million dollars for the last couple of days. And the ETF, the volume and the inflows on the other ETFs have absolutely taken off. So these are the uh these are the most recent numbers here. I'm gonna share my screen. And I'll I'll, I'll get another tweet as well that shows Eric Balkunas tweeted this out that actually of the 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 two best starts ever for an ETF or IBIT and FBTC. So, you know, in terms of uh, new let's assets just say that again, first month. Those, those, for those who weren't paying attention, not the two best starts of, of 2024, not the two best starts of the last five years, not the two best starts of commodity ETFs, not the two best starts of ETFs run by the largest institutions in the world. Two of the best starts of all ETFs. That's cool. Yeah, I'll get it here. Now, tech, technically, the time frame that Eric gives is 30 years, but ETFs haven't been around that long. So I'm just going to go ahead and no. assume that this is forever. So, yeah, and, and now, you know, the market is sort of starting to wake up to this idea that, wow, okay, maybe it's not GBTC outflows that we should be focused on. It's the net inflows. And I... This isn't, I was just uh, kind of looking at Twitter this morning before we got on, so I haven't actually verified the stat, but I saw a bunch of people saying that uh, $400 million, we had a $400 million net inflow day yesterday. And that's like, you know, people are starting to put that within the context of those Michael Saylor buys. You know, Mark, people would get all jazzed up. Oh, Saylor's buying again. You know, we're getting one of those, you know, every month or every couple of weeks now. So it no, is- No, that, Michael, th- this, yeah. is, this is simply- a supply and demand story. And, and look, we, we talked about this for, for months leading up to the eventual approval, um, which we nailed, by the way. I mean, we were off by two days, three days, but but we nailed it. Well, you, you um, nailed, to be honest. You, you're calling it to me. <laughs> well, but not we. Where, where are we? So, and I I think what, what people just haven't internalized is – it's this two-step process, right? Is we had the demand shock, which is this sailor-esque appetite, but not a one-time. I mean, Michael was like a one-time chomp and then he'd digest and then he'd chomp and then he'd digest, kind of like a, a dinosaur, or, you know, p- python. And this is more of, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the most voracious jungle cat is that you know, is eating and hunting, you know, not daily, but, but weekly. I mean, it's, this is, and this is going to go on for a very long time because of the resistance from the powers that be, right? You know, everyone who aligns with the Warren clan said, nope, nope, that's not welcome here. Those those new ETFs, they're not welcome here. And one by one, over time, that's going to fall and it's going to increase the amount of capital that's trying to squish through the gate. 
and um and and, and again I don't, I don't i don't like this analogy because it's, it's it's frightening um so we went to the uh the duke basketball game duke unc basketball game last saturday and uh, you know the right team won you know north carolina won and we were coming out and i is my wife and i and and my 13 year old and his buddy and you know everything come everyone goes in at different times but everyone comes out at the same time and everyone's coming out and you're going through and there's this narrow doorway and we get through the doorway and there's this stairway down to the street and this group of very drunk very rambunctious guys of course it was guys um starts running through the crowd and the kids got caught up in it and started to go down and you could just see what was about to happen and, and nothing bad happened, but it's, it's that, that when everyone f- suddenly FOMOs and, and other people started running, cause well, if they're running, there must be no, 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 no. So um, that, that's kind of what I feel is people are waking up to. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you, and I can't really see much in the way of what's going to stop this train, to use Lynn Alden's favorite <laughs> favorite the meme that she likes to post on Twitter. Because you know we've got all of these we've got all of these tailwinds now that are acting for Bitcoin, which is one kind of this this four year cycle. Whether or not you're a proponent that this thing is going to exist in perpetuity in the future, it's baked into a lot of market participants' minds at this point. We've got the having coming up, and it feels like the macro. Well, those are inextricably linked. The four-year cycle exists because of the having cycle, and the having cycle is hard coded. That is not going away, and the supply. So we had the demand shock. That was what I was saying. We had the demand shock, right? We got the approval of these things, so the average person can now start buying. It's now a one percent, actually one to three percent allocation in the fidelity broad portfolio. So they have a portfolio, they have an ETF that is all their other ETFs allocated based on their strategic view. And they have a one to 3% weighting and a 1% position in FBTC. Or is it FBTC or FBIT? I can't remember their ticket. FBTC. Uh, FBTC is fidelity and IBIT is. But but the, the, the thing is, when you have a demand shock, price rises. And that's what we're seeing. But now we're about to have a supply shock. And that supply shock, guaranteed, whether it's 417, 418, you know, people are wishing it's 420. It doesn't really matter what day it is. It's happening. And we're going to go from 900 a day to 450 a day. And at the amount of inflows, okay, that's happening, right now, we're buying three times the current production. That'll turn to six times the current production. But here's the problem. That's only six times current production if the miners actually sell. But a couple of the miners actually were buying. I mean, literally, not only were they not selling to pay their electric bills, they were actually in the market buying. Now, that, that can't happen forever, but but that's just a speculative move, people adding to their treasury because they anticipate this, this move. And 
you know, the other thing that, that doesn't get enough conversation is this idea of, of treasuries, right? You have MicroStrategy, clearly the biggest part of his treasury. You know, he's basically turned himself into a, a Bitcoin bank. But other companies have quietly added to, I mean, Morgan Creek has Bitcoin in on our balance sheet. Now, we're not like Sailor, but we have it. And it's funny, I... And my, you know, we're doing year end reviews. And my, my COO is like, you know, should, should we be, should we be you know, rebalancing, take things profits? I'm like, no, we suffered through the down. We're definitely not rebalancing here. In fact, I might take my profits this year and, and roll them in. So um, anyway, that's, that's happening. Yeah. And we're not I the only Hey, everyone. We'll be back to the program in just a moment. But before we return, wanted to let you know about DAS London. DAS London is the largest institutionally focused conference in crypto hosted by Blockworth. But I wanted to give you an update because we are now 10 times oversubscribed for this conference. So the bad news is we have actually got to lower as much as I love you guys, the listeners, we've got to lower our discount rate to margin 10. That's going to get you 10% off. I would highly recommend that you do that soon because you might have noticed ticket prices have gone up 200 pounds and they're only going up from here. And I actually can't guarantee that we're going to have this discount rate forever. Since we last talked, we've had a whole bunch of new great speakers sign up for the conference. We've got Brad Garlinghouse as a keynote. We've got Pascal Gauthier as a keynote. We've got new speakers signed on from Goldman Sachs, from Franklin Templeton, uh, from some of the largest family offices and allocators based out of Europe. So Theta Capital Management, L1 Digital. And actually on day one of the conference, we're going to be having an investor day, which is a Chatham House Rules hosted by some of the largest investors in crypto. Then the other thing that happened is we've got our VIP tickets that just went live. There are only 60, but we've actually had a bunch of them that just sold out even in one day. So you want to be a VIP at the conference, make sure you get your ticket. And again, use code MARGIN10 uh, to hang out with me and Mark uh, March 18th to the 20th in sunny London. Cheers. I would love if someone would do, because I agree with you, Mark, that the four-year, the having was, um, especially in the beginning, the sort of key determinant. It was just a supply and demand story. Uh, but there are all these other factors. Like there was this chart going around a little while ago around liquidity cycles, you know, that the Financial Times published. Yeah, let me see if I can find this. Um, and, and it also looks very much like these global liquidity cycles follow four-year events. Well, no, that's and- Raul's. That's Raul's case, right? He's like, no, yeah. no, no, it has nothing to do with having it. has to do with these these four-year liquidity cycles. But the problem it is- can, it, can, it could be multiple things. Well, it could it, be, it lots can of, be multiple it things. Be it, you know, it, there doesn't have to be one silver bullet, and there are weird path dependencies. Like one, one other, one other thing that I think ends up happening in, you know, not just Bitcoin but crypto is these. Have you heard this anti-network effect uh, idea? This comes from MultiCoin. It's a pretty interesting idea. It's like the structure of blockchains because you're trying to coordinate computing resources across this network, and you want each one of those computers to be relatively small and non-performant if you want your token to be a money-like thing. Then basically what happens in bull markets is a bunch of people pour onto that network. Fees go totally nuts. Everyone says this sucks. And then they move on to another network. Um, And so, and what happens in those networks are they raise money from VCs. There are these weird lockup sorts of things where people raise money at a discount. You know, they give them a two-year lock. And so everyone raises money at a discount. Then they dump their tokens two years later. And so there are these weird structural dynamics to these markets as well that originally you could trace it back to the liquidity cycle you could trace it back to the having but it, but that path dependency has has kind of um i like those guys we we invested mm-hmm. in them i you know i like them i think they're smart and i think it's a it's a it's a good argument i, I think the funny thing is it's not new 
this is not new, right? People have been raising money at a discount as insiders and then selling to the you know unsuspecting public for centuries. I mean, you can go back in the 1800s in, and look, actually you can go back in the 1600s in Europe and, and find the same thing. I mean, you know, it, it's just perpetrating badness by bad, you know, bad people perpetrating badness has been going on since the dawn of time. And anytime there's money involved, whatever that money happens to be, because, you know, we talked about this and, and, you know, 900 years ago, 1,000 years ago, it was the denarius. And no one talks about denarius, denarii, however you print it, whatever the puller of denarius is. They don't talk about that anymore. And, and we don't talk about drachmas anymore. And we don't talk about, you know, <laughs> Turkish lira from the Ottoman Empire. I don't know if it was the lira during Ottomans or not, but we just don't. And the liquidity cycles is certainly important. And, and ultimately, this is... This is actually part of what Putin was saying in, in the interview. When you weaponize the dollar right, by sanctions, you force the people who are being weaponized against, you know, who are being sanctioned. By the way, I love that you called it Twitter. Thank you. Don't call it X, call it Twitter. Um, but uh, my point there is what he says is he gave the, he gave the numbers. He said... Five years, I think it was five years ago. Five years ago, uh, 3% of our trade was in yuan. And 34% was in dollars for Russia. Today, 13% of our trade is in dollars. And 34% is in yuan. So who's gaining economic power? Right? If we believe the world reserve currency kind of 1971 petrodollar standard, if, if we believe that, which I think we should because there's a lot of evidence to support it, that's being weakened by the policymakers' decisions to sanction and force these other countries. Like if you look at Iranian oil production, pre-sanction, post-sanction, straight line up. Well, why? They're going to find a way to sell their oil someplace else. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I think uh, there's really no good, there's really no good solution to, to a lot of this stuff. And we have to figure out, I, I, the, the irony I think of, of Bitcoin and crypto I've thought many times is that it is most aligned with the values of the U S but the U S has this weird, there's this weird element to the U S in terms of our, how we exert, political and economic power over the rest of the world, which is that we have this reserve currency. Um, and that, that is, I think it's antithetical to that. I, I, I think Bitcoin is antithetical to the ideals of America hegemony. I think Bitcoin is, is rooted in the ideal of freedom, total freedom. And but you, every, the U.S., do you not we're, think we're the 20%, U.S. Is- we're 20% of the transactions of Bitcoin. It's, it's a global asset. It is borderless. It's nation stateless. I, I don't know. I kind of disagree. But with that. what what countries out there, you know, at, that are operating at size are more aligned with principles of freedom than the U.S. Depends who you listen to. 
I, is the U.S. really is re, is the U.S. really aligned with the principles of freedom? Taxation, inflation, is that freedom? I mean, I mean, what country right now doesn't have taxation or? I'm I'm just saying, is is the suppression of, you know, a whole, you know, uh, swath of of people through the systematic theft of their wealth through inflation? Like you said, you said it. You said it. Inflation is a choice. From 1776, the founding of the republic, to 1913, there was no inflation. There was no systematic inflation in the United States. Zero. But we had a ton of other bad shit. It wasn't like, oh, that was a great period of time. And then we had there, this there, no, that, not, not true. There, there were some amazing periods of time. There were some shitty periods of time, right? The free shit banking periods, era. Yeah. But, but, but there were some amazing, amazing periods of time. And look, we were an emerging market. Think about it. We were true. an emerging market. And the West was hard. I mean, settling the West was was really hard uh, in the early 1800s, and we and we had we didn't have really good rule of law, right? Bigger gun, take people's stuff, um, and so my my only point there is there is a class system, there is a a group of people that are making decisions that have significant and severe economic consequences for a very large number of people. Take the lockdowns. That was the greatest transfer of economic wealth in the history of mankind. From the masses to a very small number of people. $3.7 trillion went to the you know, and I don't, I don't like the term the billionaire class, but but that's who it went to. So I'm on your page that I do think the experiment that central banks are running are massive. Like I've compared it to like your designated driver drunk drop being drunk. It's like, oh hey, and we got home okay. Am I okay with the risk that you took? No, I'm still not okay with the risk. Right. Even even Ms. Yellen said the word unsustainable, and she's the one of the biggest problems. Um, and we're on an unsustainable path, and. I don't know how you feel, but I know how I feel when I watch our leadership talk about economic decisions. I don't feel good about it. And when I see the impact that it has, when I see the CEO of McDonald's say that on their own data, households under 45,000 are no longer going to McDonald's because they can't afford it. He actually said that out loud on a recorded line. He said they're having, they're being forced to cook at home because a Big Mac meal costs $18 in some places. Are, are you kidding me? That, and again, if, if you want to believe that's just an accidental result, like, like the runaway train, right? No one meant for the train to be going 80 miles an hour with no one on it, running it. It was a series of small little accidents that accumulate. We, we can believe that. Or we can believe that there's intent, that there is an intention. And I, I talk about this all the time, Dictator Playbook 101. If you want to be absolutely in power, 
There's tons of examples of this in history. What do you do? You impoverish the masses and then give them handouts in exchange for votes. And I will argue, it's just my opinion, I will argue that's exactly what's happening right now. There are lots of systematic attempts to buy votes. That's a, that's a world I don't really want to live in. I ain't moving yet. I'm just a little confused about what you're sort of advocating for here, though, because uh, like different okay. administration. Yeah. 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 I, I just think, you know, I think that it's possible to be skeptical and upset and not happy with this administration without doing what I would call like a little bit of whataboutism. And, you know, like you, you can you can be in fact, many like world leaders that have been extremely effective are, you know, we just talked about, uh, you know, they're often like kind of cold, calm, calculated people. I'm not happy with the leadership in the US. I talk about it all the time. I want I want these geriatrics out and I want a young new crop of people in. But one of my big concerns about life in general right now is like I think leadership is trending basically in all the wrong directions. And I, I it's almost like we're getting a barbell of shit where I, I feel like we're getting autocratic strong men abroad and kind of babbling useless people domestically. But you need a mix of those two things. You need you know, what you think of as strong states people who I like set a good example for people and that they don't get up on a podium and, and say, you know, uh, you know, SEC, last name, second word, Elon, like that, that shit is not, that is but you not got the wrong, sense. you got the wrong incentives. What, why answer just, I'll ask you a question and you, you can be whatever answer you. Why is it? That people enter government in the United States, and it's probably true in other places too, but it was definitely true in a place like Russia. You know, Putin wasn't a really rich guy. Now he's a super rich guy. But why is it that everyone, and I do mean everyone, representatives, senators, enter that job, not super rich, because the job actually doesn't pay very much. Um, and then they end up, if they're there long enough, super rich. Yeah, the incentives are broken. I agree with that. This is the, the like again. So I mean, just, a, why is that? That well, well, the reason how, is the, how how could how could AOC go from a negative net worth to a thirteen million dollar net worth? Mm. How, where where'd the money come from? Why do people from up? Why why is it even allowed? In my mind that a family member could could sit on the board of of a country where we're giving foreign aid that that seems weird to me right i my, i'm i actually i have to disclose i have to disclose to the sec that my brother-in-law works for ubs like it's my brother-in-law I, I, I what does that have to do with anything Say, so, oh well, you know, he he he. You could be influencing public companies through him. I could. How? <laughs> He's a retail stockbroker at UBS. So I don't know. Yeah, seems weird. Anyway, I I want to get back to to markets a little bit here. And one one interesting thing that happened this week was, you know, we're talking about the uh, 
the 10 year auction. And so we had a couple of big auctions this week in longer dated treasuries. And one, the 10 year was particularly notable because at 42 billion, it was the largest ever according to treasury data. Right. Um, and the average yield that got awarded was 4.093%, um, which was lower than the average yield of 4.29% uh, seen over the past six auctions. Um, and uh, we had also uh, so Andy Constant, who's kind of our uh, teacher at grading different auctions out there. So thank you, Andy, for the services that you perform. Uh, gave us an A. Um, and then we also had a 30-year auction this week, which came in particularly strong. And I think what's notable about this is, you know, for a while, there's, there's always been this question of who's going to buy up the U.S. debt and yada, yada. And this, this bid, this strong bid for duration uh, probably shows that the market is a little bit more willing to take on risk. And that's also reflected I in... I agree with you. I thought someone said. I thought someone said that 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 the Fed was a big buyer. I thought I, I thought I read that that QE was back. So that that I thought was interesting. We'll have to we'll have to check out whether or not uh, I'm, I'm I think QT is still going on. So I'd be pretty surprised if they didn't announce that they had shifted that policy. But it's always possible. I mean, they have the they have the primary dealers that market make on their behalf. Well, and uh, you saw that too, right? Now, hedge funds are going to be called dealers. Like, oh my God. So I actually didn't see that. No, I missed that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, 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 Mm -hmm. they are now saying anyone who uh, traffics in, in US treasuries, they're going to deem dealers, primary dealers. And we know how the primary dealer works, right? Is in, in the QE days, it was just a license to get bribes, right? You you bought from the treasury and then you sold to the central bank and, and you made a profit. And in a QT world, that doesn't work. And these these companies have to hold the bonds. And so, and that, that's what happened with the banks. And we don't have time to, to go into this whole thing that we thought we would. But, you know, the banks did their job. They bought the bonds um, when no one else would. And when the Fed stopped, and then they raised rates, and now a third of bank equity is losses. That's that's a that's a bad place, and we're going to see. We we already saw it this this week with um, New York Community Bank. Is that the name of it? New York Collapsing. Community Bank. Yeah, NYCB. Collapsing, and-, and and you know, a handful. There was like a dozen others uh, that that you know stocks are down 40 50 60 70 80 percent and and again look if if <laughs> i i did a presentation down in in cayman on this this power politics and populism and you know one of my observations is you know since j john pierpont morgan was put in business by george kidder the london banker you know back in in the 1800s you know, J.P. Morgan has had this amazing glide plane, and every time a large, valuable asset goes bankrupt, you know, whether it's Bear Stearns or Washington Mutual or Silicon Valley Bank, it magically ends up in J.P. Morgan's hands. And if and so, I, I used a picture of, of Pac-Man, right, gobbling up all all the little banks, and. If that's your goal, right, is to concentrate all the the wealth and power at the tippy top of that that pyramid, that's what we're going to see another wave of here. And my my compliance officer, you, you should probably shouldn't shouldn't do that. He's you know he's like really 
good friends with the people that regulate us. I'm like, well, if Jamie calls me in, I, you know, that'd actually be a win because I, I don't think he cares what I say. He is a, he is certainly a very powerful banker, but we should, I mean, the, the situation with NYCB is also pretty interesting because, you know, if we go back to March or April of this, this previous year, when there was, you know, we had SVB and some of the other bank failures, the concern there was essentially interest rate risk. So they had large portfolios of treasuries where, yeah, the, the Fed rate hikes sent the, the value of their collateral treasuries in this case uh, down to basically distress levels. People were concerned about a run on the bank. But ultimately, there was no concern that those loans would go bad or right? there wasn't credit risk that uh, there right. would be defaults. Now, right. the concern on the, which is which is less bad, right? But a, a solvency problem can eventually turn into, uh, you know, a credit problem or a run on the bank. The, the well, it does now, on March 11th, right? Right before the Ides of March, which is notoriously a bad time for, for markets generally. Um, on March 11th, the BTFP goes away and, whoa, 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 hold on. So these banks have these bonds that they can't sell because they'd realize a loss and then they'd be out of business. And so you're saying, okay, well, you can borrow from us in the short term to, to, so you can hold these to maturity. Now they're doing away with the program. What's going to happen to that $130, $143 billion? I don't know. Does it get vaporized? Like literally? And because they're going to be forced to sell, realize the losses and, and get gobbled up. So that was a weird, I thought that was a weird decision, right? Yeah. Well, the I guess, I guess the one of the open questions in the especially New York, but just general commercial real estate sector is what's going to happen to a bunch of these assets because obviously people aren't coming back to the office as in mass as everyone thought they might or as quickly as they ultimately wanted. And at some point, we're going to have to accept substantial write downs, and then it's well, just we are, we're, we're seeing them. And again, only seven percent of large bank equity is commercial real estate. That's not their biz. 30 to 40% of small bank balance sheets are commercial real estate. Again, and in, in, there's no question, right, that people aren't going back. You know, that, you know, some are being forced. And, but even those companies that are forcing, they laid off 10, 15, 20% of their workforce. So just the numbers are down. So they're just not going to need as much real estate. I mean, the number of layoffs in the last two weeks, you know, big, big numbers, big. In banks or just across? Everywhere. Like Every, no, at, everywhere. No, no, Like tech, you know, um, UPS, manufacturing. I mean, the UPS one was really, that one was tough because I guess there was some deal struck to get something, some, uh, maybe it was like a debt financing or forgiveness. I know I, I didn't get all the details, but it was something they cut a deal. It was with the unions and the and the government. And then they laid off a bunch of people anyway because their their numbers were down because it turns out, you know, not as much, not as much activity. Um look global trade was was on a down path. And you know, we haven't talked about this is you know what's going on in in uh shipping channels with Suez and all that stuff. You know, that's bad. I mean, the shipping activity and it's not, it's not as bad as it was when we had all the ships lined up in, in the Chinese China Sea and, and the, the harbor in, in LA, you know, when the world was locked down. But it's, it's 
is bad. You know, there, there's some, there's some, look, there's, there's always stuff going on that we could talk about, but don't have time. Yeah. Um, so I, I think one, one take actually, I just want to get, um, and then I know we got to run here is, I don't know if you saw, this is a little bit more local to, uh, crypto as an industry, but Coindesk, uh, they had yep. some big layoffs at there. So they got acquired by yep. bullish the exchange and their CEO, Kevin Worth, their COO and a whole bunch of executives have departed. And now the head of BD at bullish is, is in charge over there. And yeah, I think, look, I, you know, Coindex is a competitor of ours. Um, you know, I'm not going to say they're not, but I also do think, and I, you know, I have a lot of respect for bullish. I think they're a great company, but at the end of the day, you know, crypto needs, you know, dispassionate, separated, firewalled off media. Uh, and I'm not sure if this is a step in the right direction. Uh, you mean, you mean, you mean Goldman shouldn't run the the general financial press? I mean, it would be the equivalent. I mean, not, not well, I said, that's not true. They're not Goldman. Bullish is not Goldman. Coinbase is Goldman. So let's go down a couple rungs to bullish. Bullish is fine. Um, but but they're not they're not the big dog. But yeah, it's like it'd be like Coinbase, you know, the Goldman of of exchange controlling the the digital asset media. That 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 seems like a bad idea. Yeah. It's and that I mean it's Again, I, I think one of the things that, that this space needs is, uh, you know, the cheerleaders and the people that are believing in the tech are absolutely good. We we need more of that. We also need people to call balls and strikes and say, hey, there's some not good stuff. <laughs> Obviously, a lot of not good stuff happens in this industry, too. So uh, we, we talk about this all the time. It's about the questions. We need people who can ask good questions. Yeah, I agree. Because good questions focus our minds and, and they force us to talk about ideas. And, you know, we've all heard that Eleanor Roosevelt, whoever said it first, you know, small minds talk about people, average minds talk about events, and large minds talk about ideas. And so the more you can talk about ideas, the more you can challenge the status quo, the more you can, you know, spend time actually thinking about the issue as opposed to just putting out propaganda and fluff, I think the, the better off you are. and. I think what I love about the rise of companies like like Blockworks and others is the rise of or the re-rise of, of real journalism as opposed to the corporatocracy of journalism, made up word, um, corporatization, there's a better word, of of journalism that, that's happened with, you know, companies and big individuals owning these media companies with agendas. I, I think that's less good than, you know, citizen journalism. I'd say it all the time. If, if I want to know what's happened in Argentina, I'm not going to wait to read about it in New York Times. I'm just going to watch a Periscope on Twitter. And when I see a bunch of people in the street chanting Mile's name, I'm like, yeah, that's interesting. So, um, again, back to let's let's ask the hard questions and let's let's have dialogue and debate in search of truth. That's what's fun, and. It's not always comfortable. Like I'm sure we're going to get comments. You know, oh, you know, Mark and Mike, they, they just don't agree. And that, you know, Mike doesn't like what Mark's saying. I, sometimes I don't like what you say. Sometimes you don't like what I say. But that's what we 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 talk, and that that's our job. And uh, right. still love each other. I mean, come on. Yeah, of course, of course, Mark. Always and as always, best hour of my week. Unfortunately, we we got to run now. Got to go. Um, yeah.
But cheers, my friend. I will see you same time next week. Have a good one.